Thank you, everyone, this morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and 14. And while you're turning there, I'll ask you, this, how are you doing this morning? All right, I heard all right, I heard good. We'll take that. You see on the screen uh, a different John than wrote the Gospel, a man named John Bradford. I'm just curious, out of the shoot, how many of you have ever heard the name John Bradford? Ah, a few of you. Excellent. I didn't until this past week. I learned that back in the year 1550, a man named John Bradford was ordained a priest in the Anglican Church to serve as a roving chaplain in Lancashire and Cheshire. John's nickname soon became Holy Bradford. And it was out of respect, not ridicule, but out of respect for his dedication to God. Three years later, in 1553, Mary Tudor ascended to the throne in England, and Bradford was arrested on trumped-up charges and thrown in prison in the Tower of London because of his devotion to the Church of England, um, which Mary Tudor didn't much appreciate. Bradford would never again be a free man. Two years later, John Bradford was tried and condemned to death and brought to Newgate Prison to be burned at the stake. In front of a huge crowd that had gathered, they even had to delay it because of the number of people trying to crowd in. Bradford was chained to the stake at Smithfield with a young man named John Leaf. Before the fire was lit, Bradford begged forgiveness for any he had wronged, and he offered forgiveness to those who had wronged him. He then turned to his fellow prisoner, John Leaf, and said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. A writer of this period recorded that Bradford endured the flame as a fresh gale of wind in a hot summer day, confirming by his death the truth of that doctrine he had so diligently and powerfully preached during his life. Like I told you before this week, I didn't know who John Bradford was. Didn't see most of you did either. But even if we don't know his name, I, I would guess many more of us are familiar with the very famous Bradford quote. During the time he was in prison, one day Bradford watched as a group of prisoners were being led to their execution, and he made this remark, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford, or it's more common variant today, there but for the grace of God go I, or perhaps but for the grace of God, that would be me. We'll come back to John Bradford and his famous quote. But first, in anticipation of and in celebration of Resurrection Day this year, last week we began looking at four questions that Jesus' disciples asked Jesus in John 13 and 14, the night before Jesus died. Jesus is addressing, he's addressing his disciples' despair over his imminent departure and the question we looked at last week was Peter's question from John 13:36. You recall, Lord, Peter asked, where are you going? And we saw how Jesus' answer given in love was that he was going to prepare a place for them in his father's house, but not to worry, 
he wouldn't forget about them and would one day return so they could follow him there too. We ended last week at John 14, verse 4, where Jesus perhaps intentionally seems to almost beg the next question when he tells his disciples, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And sure enough, perhaps after looking at each other, Thomas this time is spurred to ask, how can we know the way to the place where you are going when we don't know where you are going? But let's read it again in context. Your Bibles are open to John 13 and 14. I'll begin reading at John 13, verse 33. Jesus is speaking. My children, he says to his disciples, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. This is the very Word of God. Amen? Amen. I am the way and the truth and the life. One commentator has said that this particular I am statement of Jesus is the premier expression of the theology of John's entire gospel. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A careful study of Greek syntax affirms that of these three terms, way, truth, and life, the emphasis falls on the first, the way. Access to the Father's presence in heaven is only through Jesus and no other. He is the only one who can lead his followers back to the places he even now prepares. And this is true because Jesus is the truth. And those who follow Jesus, who come to the Father through his way, they'll be the ones who gain eternal life. Jesus, therefore, is indeed the only avenue to God. Another commentator puts it this way, All truth is God's truth as all life is God's life, but God's truth and God's life are incarnate in Jesus. And so while Christianity is indeed 
inclusive, absolutely anyone can choose to follow Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is, or Christianity is also exclusive in this way. The only way to God is through Jesus, who is not a way, a truth, or a life, but again the Greek is emphatic, giving us the definite article three times. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Can I have an amen? Now, as you might imagine, such an absolute statement doesn't play very well in today's so-called postmodern world, which teaches truth is subjective. What's true for you is true for you and may be different than what's true for me, and don't put on me what's true for you. How rude. And oftentimes, Christians end up defending, as we should, the absolute truth that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, in their book, Unchristian, share statistics where nearly 9 out of 10 people in and around their 20s who are outside the church, a whopping 87%, said that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. 87% of these younger outsiders identified Christianity with pointing out something wrong in someone's life and making them feel put down, excluded, and marginalized. And guess what? Most younger Christians who go to church feel the same way, 53% of them between the ages of 16 and 29 said they believe the label judgmental accurately fits present-day Christianity. Now, those statistics may prompt very different reactions. On the one hand, maybe we're inclined to at least lean toward or consider a reaction, great, These statistics show that the church is doing a great job standing her ground against sin. I wish they were even higher or lower as the case might be. But on the other hand, it seems to me we might at least consider the possibility in humility that statistics like these at least in part may be exposing something horribly wrong with our witness. Our witness that includes the fact that God alone is allowed to judge others. And our witness that includes something we just read from John 13 when Jesus says people will know His disciples by their love. Speaking of love, these same authors asked whether people agreed or disagreed with the following statement. Christian churches accept and love people unconditionally regardless of how they look or what they do. Only 47% of born-again Christians strongly agreed with that statement. Only 20% of those outside the church strongly agreed with that statement. And we face a similar question, I suppose, with this statistic than we did with the last. Are those numbers solely or mostly because people have a confused definition of love? They don't feel loved by Christians unless Christians agree there is no absolute truth and anyone can do whatever they want in their own eyes. 
Have they equated love with tolerance? Does that explain the statistic? Or does this statistic expose something gone horribly wrong with our witness? Are we, in fact, more about or more inclined to judge and less about or less inclined to love? My own personal suspicion is that blame, if you will, for these statistics lie on both sides. It seems likely to me that many people today react to a claim of absolute truth as judgmental and unloving simply because it's absolute. It's what they're being taught. You know, you come to someone, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And the reaction is, what? You're judging me because I don't believe that. Take it back. Well, I can't take it back. It's true. Man, the loving thing to do would be for you to take it back and tolerate and accept what I believe. You must not love me. Or something like that. But it also seems possible, at least, if not likely, in my opinion, given the struggle that we Christians and the church still have with sin, that we might, unfortunately, justify had statistics like these as well. And, and even that mere possibility is cause, I think, to remind us the importance of constantly taking a close look at our motives and our attitudes to be sure that we're doing the best we can. So help us God in showing the world that God is deeply and madly in love with all people everywhere, warts and all. And so I tried to do that the past couple of weeks. I, I tried to take a close look at the motives and attitudes of one person in particular I know really well to see if there was anything that might be improved in their witness of God's love. You didn't know. I was watching you. No. You're wondering who it was I was looking at closely, right? And I can tell you for sure right now that I have a wife and kids sitting there thinking, oh, dear God, he's going to talk about one of us. No, not, not you guys. Phew, right? No, the individual I know pretty well, at least, whose motives and attitudes I looked at closely this week, maybe you've guessed it, is me. Maybe, hopefully, my prayer has been all week, you'll be able to relate to some of it, at least. Now, the idea, the idea to check my own motives and attitudes toward others, toward showing the world that God loves everyone, all started a week before last Thursday when two friends took me to see the Phantom of the Opera playing in Denver at the Temple Buell Theater. I think the best musical ever written, but we could argue all day on that, I suppose. Hopefully, many of you know the basic plot. Ever since birth, the Phantom was terribly physically deformed, and as a young boy, he was even held up for ridicule for people to gawk at, even used as a circus attraction. Come see the creature. One day he escaped and hid and grew older all alone in the dark and brooding bowels of an opera house. It doesn't take too much imagination to see and understand and guess at 
the psychological and emotional problems of the phantom. He even fashions a mask covering the deformed half of his head and face. He's so humiliated. In time, the phantom falls in love with a young chorus girl of the opera house, Christine, and ends up her mysterious music and vocal teacher. He fantasizes, dares to hope, really, that Christine will one day love him too, warts and all, despite his deformed features, and will even one day be his bride. Tragically for him, Christine falls in love with someone else. Young, dashing, good-looking, wealthy, aristocratic Raoul. And, well, it's quite an understatement to say the Phantom is upset over this development. He turns especially cruel, murders people, kidnaps Christine, threatens to murder Raoul unless Christine agrees to marry him. I'm telling you, afternoon soap operas have nothing on the Phantom of the Opera. Anyway, in the final scene, with the law bearing down on him, the Phantom finally lets Christine and Raoul go after she shows him the first real compassion and tenderness he's ever known. But he's still heartbroken that Christine is gone. And then Christine comes back for one last goodbye. I brought a clip from the recent movie. It's the final part of this final scene. Let's watch. Paper faces on parade Masquerade Hide your face The world will never find you
man, and a week ago Thursday, I'm sitting there, eyes brimming with tears, keeping them open really wide, right? Because you don't want one of those to come out, because if that happens, right, guys, you've got to do this, and everybody goes, ah, Mr. Man over there is crying. Can't have that. And as I'm sitting there deeply moved, I mean, I'm hurting so bad for this phantom. I mean, it's everything I could do not to stand up and yell at the curtain, Christine, come back, oh, pick him, pick him. You don't want Raul, you want the phantom, Christine. How could you? And if you're not, you should all be making a note, don't ever take Todd to see a show. I mean, I'm rooting for the Phantom. I've seen it many times, and maybe one reason I keep going back again and again is I hope against hope, maybe it'll end differently this time, and the poor guy will get the girl. I mean, really? And even as I'm sitting there feeling so deeply for this guy, crying for him, a part of me starts to argue with the tears. Wait a minute, what are you doing? This guy's a psycho. He's a murderer. He needs to be put away. He doesn't deserve Christine. He deserves what's coming to him. He deserves death. And you're crying for him? What's wrong with you? And for a second I thought, yeah, what's wrong with me? But then a new wave of compassion for this hurting man came. And I replied to myself, the phantom's not the only one with issues. No, I replied to myself. I said back to myself, actually defended him. I said, yeah, but did you hear him, Christine? I love you. He loves her. And of course he's messed up. Look what happened to the poor man. <laughs> and by now, it's like, and I'm going like this. And right then, I kid you not, a famous phrase I had heard long, long ago came to mind. I don't remember the last time I heard it. And right there as I'm sitting there, and this is just impacting me, it came to mind and I actually said it out loud. I said, there but for the grace of God go I. And a couple of people who heard me kind of turned and looked at me and were like, huh? I get that a lot. <laughs> Why such empathy for that phantom? Those of you who have seen the show or movie or know the show, don't most of you feel empathy for the phantom? Am I alone? You feel for the guy? When I got home, it was late, but I, I couldn't stand it. I went online immediately, Googled two things. First, I Googled there but for the grace of God go I, because I wanted to know where in the world that came from. And I found the story of John Bradford. Second thing I Googled was final scene phantom reactions. And I found dozens of blogs and threads and videos where people were sharing their opinions about the phantom. And by an overwhelming margin, 9 out of 10, probably 99 out of 100, people passionately defending this dirty, rotten, sinner phantom guy. 
comments like, oh, the poor phantom. Oh, Christine should have picked the phantom. Why don't they change the ending? I love the phantom. Almost everyone rooting for the dirty, rotten, sinner cycle phantom. And there was only a small handful of anti-phantom comments. My favorite anti-one came from a teen girl in Oklahoma who posted, You're all crazy. I think he's a creeper with issues and just won't let her go. There but for the grace of God go I. And in the next few days, as my thoughts and heart turn toward John 14 and today's message into the exclusive nature of Christianity, and as a friend pointed me to that book on Christian, which I've had difficulty putting down, my phantom experience stayed with me. And I thought, what about other dirty, rotten, psycho sinners I know? Do I cry in empathy for them too? And a few people came to mind. First one that popped into my head. I just share it with you honestly. I don't know why, but first one that came to mind was Ted Haggard. He's a former pastor who, by his own admission, got caught in terrible sin. And he was suddenly and subsequently disgraced and sent packing. And it dawned on me, I had never, not once, shed a single tear for Ted Haggard. I bawled for the phantom. But not Ted Haggard. And at first I said, wow, that's different. But then I had difficulty answering the question, but is it? There but for the grace of God go I. Well, I thought, maybe it is different. Think of someone else, quick. And so right at the moment... Right at that moment, I was watching the evening news, and a reporter was covering the sentencing of Bernard Madoff, the disgraced financier who swindled billions of dollars, including the life savings of many elderly people. And the reporter was interviewing some of the people who were victimized by Madoff's diabolical Ponzi scheme. And wow, were they upset. Of course they were. I would be too. And comment after comment poured out of the interview. And some of the things said, and all of them along this line, I am so glad he's getting what's coming to him. And things like, it's not enough. Justice still hasn't been served. They need to go after his family too because they surely were in on it. And the like. No one was crying for Bernard Madoff. And I wasn't crying for him either. I cried for the phantom, but not Bernard Madoff. Why not? 
There but for the grace of God go I. And more names came to mind. One of them was Osama bin Laden. Wow. And same result, tears for the phantom, but none for bin Laden. Is that different? And you might be inclined to say emphatically even, yes, it's different. Okay, how? There but for the grace of God go I. And then a parade of names, much more personal to me, came to mind. People who had hurt me more directly, more personally. And same result, plenty of tears for the pain I was going through. But no tears, not one, for most of them at least. Instead, a desire that they pay for what they had done to me. But no tears. I cried for the Phantom of the Opera, but not for them. Why not? There but for the grace of God go I. Yes, I keep saying that. I keep saying it because I think one reason I have difficulty shedding tears for dirty, rotten sinners is that I so easily forget that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner too. Saved by grace, praise God. But nonetheless, I'm no better on my own, on my own merit in the eyes of heaven than any of them. I only feel like I am. God doesn't love me any more than He loves anyone else on the face of the planet. I only feel like He does. And I thought, I wonder what happens to my witness if those I'm witnessing to sense my feeling that I'm better than they are. Or sense my feeling that God loves me more than them because I chose Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And they haven't. Or even if they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior too, but are having a tougher time than I might on certain battlefronts against certain sins. I wonder what happens to my witness to those folks if they sense an attitude of superiority. Might even feel judged or only conditionally Loved, the condition being, well, you ought to be more like me. Does God cry for these people I've mentioned this morning, do you think? Do you think God's shed tears for Ted Haggard? Bernard Madoff, Bin Laden, 
Anyone who hurts us? Does God long for them, love them, want them, weep over them? Does God so love the world that He sent and sacrificed His one and only Son for them? Of course He does. Do we love others like that too? As witnesses, representatives, as someone indwelt by God Himself, showing the world what He's all about, shouldn't we then love others like that too? And is it possible that at least part of the reason for the perception of the church being judgmental and unloving, is it possible that maybe we are? That in our zeal to defend that Jesus is the only way, we're pretty proud about that, that we've found it. But Todd, the Phantom has such a compelling story. And there's music. It moves us. It's easy to empathize with him. Where's the compelling story of Haggard, Madoff, Bin Laden, and others who have hurt me? If they had a compelling story like the Phantom, then I'd cry for him too. My friends, you don't think that each of them has a story too? Explaining why they did what they did? And my brothers and sisters, at its foundation, their story is the same story as yours and mine. Oh, the details might be different. But the core story remains the same. You can read all about it in Genesis 3 in something called original sin. We all live in a fallen world and fallen bodies and fallen souls with all sorts of forces and pressures and generational sin contributing to why we do what we do. Let me take for you perhaps the most outrageous example I gave this morning for many of us, including me, Osama bin Laden, and ask this question. Does anyone here honestly believe that if we had the same background, same upbringing, same influence, same experience, same personality, same DNA, same environment, and a host of other factors that ultimately a sovereign God created or allowed in Ben Laden's life, do we honestly believe that but for the grace of God, we wouldn't have done the same thing? That somehow, on our own, we would have found a way to make a better choice, but for the grace of God. See, if we can get there, that only by the grace of God we don't mess up. 
then in my opinion, we at least opened the door, we at least paved the way for genuine tears, not only for a phantom of the opera, but for everyone. And if our tears for everyone are indeed genuine, then to the extent those troubling statistics are at all legitimate, to the extent they in fact expose a disingenuous and insincere witness, perhaps the perception of our witness to those both inside and outside the church may become non-judgmental and unconditionally loving. An earlier draft of this message this morning centered around the word empathy. I was going to suggest this morning that we need to be sure we have empathy for those who are lost or who struggle. Empathy has been defined as the capacity to share and understand another's emotion and feelings. It's often characterized as the ability to put oneself into another's shoes or in some way experience what the other person is feeling. And while this is good and helpful advice, I took a slightly different path this morning because it struck me that maybe more than our need to put ourselves into another's shoes, maybe a deeper need, maybe a more Christian empathy, and one that is no less helpful is for us to realize and live out the fact that we're already in their shoes. But for the grace of God, we're already in their shoes and we just act like we're not. And we're better than that on our own merit. There but for the grace of God go I. The authors of UnChristian relate the following story from a Christian youth speaker and musician. This speaker tells this story. A few years ago, a church brought me in to do a youth event designed to reach outsiders. It was supposed to be a free concert, and afterward I was going to present the gospel. Well, before it started, I noticed some teens were not being allowed in. At the time, I thought maybe the church was charging for the event. Sometimes churches do that to help offset the cost. So anyway, I went to the pastor and said, I'd be happy to use my honorarium for anyone who wanted to come in. And do you know what he said? He told me, no, we're not charging for the event. We just don't want a certain type of kid infecting our youth group. I don't mean to judge the church either because my friends at West Bowles Community Church, they're but for the grace of God go we. Do we cry genuinely for the lost and those who struggle? Shouldn't we? Let's pray. Father, please forgive us if, 
and when we individually or collectively come across as self-righteous, superior, proud in our own merit, elitist, exclusive, judgmental, or unloving in our zeal to protect the absolute truth that Jesus is indeed the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Oh, please, Father, help us to also show how You love and cherish anyone and everyone, warts and all. And humble us, Father, when we need to be humbled to know and to feel deeply to the core of our being that but for Your grace, we're nothing. And remind us again today and every day that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Would you stand please for God's benediction, His good words to us this morning. May God grant you the heart for the lost that He granted the Apostle Paul who said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. In Jesus, the Messiah's name, Amen. Shalom. Go in peace. Have a great week. See you soon.